Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of our healthcare practice group. Today, I'm here with my colleague, Christina Kuda, who's also part of the Retzel Health Law Group. And our special guest is Juan Morado Jr., who we're very excited to have with us today. Juan is a partner at Benish. He's a healthcare lawyer with an expertise in certificate of need in Illinois. He's also the former general counsel to the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board. And we've had the pleasure of working with him before on other clients who are seeking a certificate of need as it's a very special expertise. And he obviously brings a lot of that expertise to the table. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Christina. Erica, appreciate it. So it's obvious that today we're going to be talking about certificate of needs. And a lot of our clients come to us and talk about wanting to have a surgical suite or wanting to have a surgery center. And so what I thought we could really cover today are some of the differences between those two categories and what is involved in the actual process currently in Illinois so that they might have a better idea of what to expect and hear some of your thoughts on that topic. So why don't we start by first you explaining what is the difference between a surgical suite and a surgery center and when do you really need a certificate of need? Sure, so um, surgical suites you typically find in what's called an office-based lab. Um, It really depends on the level of sedation and the type of procedure that you're performing. Um, The higher level of sedation the Illinois Department of Public Health is going to want to see you be a licensed surgery center in order to perform those types of procedures. Um, and then on the uh, Illinois and their infinite wisdom, don't just call them ambulatory surgical centers, they call them ambulatory surgical treatment centers. So Illinois is unique in that they call them ASTCs versus ASCs. Uh, there is a threshold. So if you have a surgical suite and you're operating an office-based lab, let's say you're doing uh, uh, pain management uh, in, in injections. Um, once you use a particular location more than 50% of the time for surgical procedures, under the Ambulatory um, Surgical Treatment Center Licensing Act, you're supposed to go obtain a license for an ASC. Well, you just can't go obtain a license for an ASC. You have to get a CON first to do so. So people find themselves in the situation when they're getting to that 50% threshold of do I have to get a CON? What is even a CON and what is the process there moving forward? So, um, you know, CON, Certificate of Need, is required anytime you're going to be establishing, which is what that would be considered to open up a new surgical center, uh, establishing, um, changing ownership, or modifying a surgical center. And modification really is construction to maybe expand an operating room or to reduce the size of one, perhaps. Uh, but that only really comes into play when you're spending a certain amount of dollars. CON at the at, at its core, there's a couple of different things that the board looks at. Um, they want to know again, what is the project looking to do? So let's talk about the the physician who maybe has been running an office-based lab is looking now and getting to that 50% threshold and thinking, do I need a CON? Well, you have to think about um, if you're being establishing a facility. So in this case, you would. Establishing just means you're getting a new one. Uh, so that means right off the bat, you need a CON, no matter how much money you're spending. Even if you're only spending five, six $600,000, whatever the cost associated may be. 
And then you also, um, if you have an existing surgery center and maybe you want to reduce the size of it, if it's a physician practice, there's a certain capital expenditure threshold associated with your project. And if you exceed it, then you need a CO1. If you're below it, then you don't need a CO1. Um, and there's a different capital expenditure threshold for hospitals, for physician groups, and then for long-term care facilities. For physician groups, it is, I believe, $3.4 million. So if your project is gonna cost an excess of that, then you're gonna be required to get a CO1. If you're a hospital, it's 14.2 million and long-term care centers come in around 7.2. Um, so that, that's what's, you know, the, the thresholds in terms of requiring a CO1. And I can keep going on and on. So maybe we can focus a little bit more. Do you want me to hit on a particular well, piece? I think that's a great question. I guess, you know, what happens with the practice? Like, let's say, you know, they're, they're right around that 50% mark. I mean, is somebody out there looking to see, oh, you should have had a CON, you should have, you know, gotten that license. I mean, do you see people getting caught for that? And what happens if they do get caught? Like, what right. are the potential fines or implications for that practice that maybe hit 52% either unknowingly or knowingly? Right. So it's, it's, it's an interesting question. It's, it's a, um, one of the rare instances of self-regulation within the state of Illinois. Um, there's not really anybody who's conducting audits on the amount of time you're spending in your surgical suite used on performing procedures. And Illinois is also unique, um, unlike Indiana as an example, where you don't have to have a, um, an accreditation to run an office-based lab. You know, like the state of Indiana, for example, you gotta, you gotta be JCO certified to be running an office-based lab. Illinois doesn't require that. So um, really there's nobody who polices it, if you will, but there are advantages to having a surgery center versus just running a surgical suite. And that's when people start to really think about how much time they're actually using their space for. Um, it has traditionally not been a very strong argument before the CON board to say, hey, you're forcing me to get this CON. I'm coming up to that 50% threshold, so you gotta give me one. They, they don't really buy that as an argument uh, to say, oh, well, we should definitely approve this. I've seen folks bring that argument to the board before um, and, and listen, that's what, that's what the law says, right? If you're going over 50%, then you should apply for one. But the, uh, the board has, has not taken that as meaning that they should approve the application itself. That's really interesting. So um, if you are coming up on that and you go to apply, how easy, and maybe this is kind of a loaded question, is it going to be? And what factors are they looking at in terms of granting that? So, you know, a doctor who may pass that threshold may want to get a CON, but if the doctor can't get it, may need to shrink their operation to make sure they're below technically that 50%. If, if they're not buying that argument, how hard is it for people to get these CONs right now? So I, I will touch on that. Let me just also add though, when you're thinking about that 50% threshold, think about all the other things that you're doing in your physician practice, right? It's not all procedures when they're coming to you. There's, there's that period of when you're, you're following up on, a on an injection, for example, that you just gave, there's all that time before leading up to that. So, you know, that 50% threshold is, it really just depends on, uh, you know, how you calculate your time spent in your space. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about getting into the CON process. I tell every single either physician group, individual physician or hospital that the beginning of a good CON team includes at least two folks, sometimes three. The two folks that it definitely includes as an architect. 
CONs are site specific. That means that if you have an existing location, you can't just say we're going to move it across the street. You actually, under the law, have to file an application to establish a new one at the location you want to. Then you've got to file an application to discontinue the existing location. And it's, it's a two-step process. There's that, that's just how the, the law is currently written. But if you're um, starting, let's say, de novo right from the beginning, you just want to establish the surgery center, you can't say, well, we're thinking about doing it on the south side of the city of Chicago. You know, you got to actually have a location and you have to be able to exhibit control over it. And from the CON board's perspective, control can be as much as here's the deed, I own it, here's a copy of my tax bill, or it can be as little as an LOI. I have an LOI to acquire this property. And typically what we do is we find a lot of clients um, in the LOI phase of exhibiting control because there is some uncertainty with obtaining the CON. And we wanna make sure we're offering them that level of, of just protection for their own interests. And what we'll typically do is advise them to put some language in their LOIs or other purchase agreements that say, you're gonna give us X amount of time to get through the CON process. But that is, it's a key to have a location. So sometimes you wanna make sure you have that right commercial real estate professional helping you find a location. But once you have identified it, it's the architect. I've unfortunately seen clients who have gotten all the way through the CON process only to find out that the space that they have been telling me was gonna be perfect for their surgery center can't actually meet the licensure requirements of IDPH. And IDPH will look at surgery centers in, in kind of two buckets. There'll be your single specialty, and then there will be your multi-specialty. More often than not, it's gonna be looked at as a multi-specialty. Single specialties are extremely limited um, in the way that they look at those design standards. And the big thing about a multi-specialty surgery center that seems to be the biggest hangup for folks is having the eight foot clearance of a hallway so that you can get at least in IDPH's opinion, they wanna see you be able to get two gurneys through that hallway in the event there's an emergency or you just need to, meet, need to move people through. That has um, tended to be one of the big hangups for spaces as people are evaluating where they're gonna put their ASC. Wow. So architects are key. You wanna get an architect involved early. You wanna have them walk through the space and you wanna have them get a sense of, yeah, this could work. We can put the operating room here. We can put the recovery base here, nursing station, so on and so forth. And then the final piece to your, your team is gonna be a CON consultant or attorney. Um, there are probably eight or nine folks in the entire state of Illinois who are really doing CON work. And everybody's pretty good. Everybody's pretty good. The ones who are doing it with regularity know what they're doing. You know, you mentioned I, um, I had the good fortune of being the general counsel for the CON board. So there are many instances where I am not only very familiar with the rules, but I wrote them back when I was uh, serving as the general counsel of the board. Right including versions of the application that they use now. Um, so your, your CON uh, consultant or attorney, what they're gonna be able to do for you is help you get ready for planning out what kind of um, ASC you're looking to get. And so in that instance, that means how many physicians do you think are gonna be able to drive procedures to your, to your ASC? That's important because what it's gonna do is determine how many operating rooms you can apply for. There are specific hour standards associated with an operating room here in Illinois to justify one. And so it's this whole process, right? Certificate of need. How many do you need? Well, 
you can justify the need by showing your historical patient referrals. <clears throat> so you have, a, let's say, an orthopedic practice, and they're looking at doing an ASC. I would go to the, the principal of that practice and say, pull all of your historical data for the last 12 months and tell me where are you doing your procedures, what type of procedures you're doing, how long they take, and then what are the zip codes associated with those procedures. And I'll tell you why each one's important, because the total number is going to tell me how many hours of surgical time you can justify, which will in, in turn let me know how many operating rooms we can apply for. Illinois says that you need to have, for one operating room, a 100% fully utilized operating room is 1,500 hours of surgical time. And just to give you a sense of what that actually means in, in terms of breaking it down, um, you you have to think about you know how many days of the year you're going to be open, how many hours of the year you're going to be open and operating to figure out what your available surgical time is going to be. So I can find out from a, a physician group giving me their historical numbers. I can tell them, well, it looks like based on what you've done historically, you can justify, we'll call it 1,600 hours. So if you hit, you heard me say 1,500 for one room. So if you're at 1,600, that means, according to the state of Illinois, you can fill up that first room, no problem, and you automatically need a second room even though you're not at 100% yet for that second room. You just, there's no way you can do them all in one room. Right. So now I would tell that person, we can apply for two rooms. So it, it makes sense then to bring multiple people together to apply for a bigger surgery center because if you're looking at the data from multiple practices, you could justify more hours and more rooms. And more uh, rooms, and right. Exactly. So th th yep. That and makes sense. One, I'm wondering if I'm someone who wants to operate an ambulatory surgical treatment center, is there advantages or disadvantages to trying to buy one that already has a CLM on the open market or establishing a new one from scratch? So that, that's a very good question. And I'll, I'll use that to also finish up the, the last point I was making about pulling all that data. You heard me talk about the zip codes and you heard me talk about where are you actually performing those procedures. The whole concept of the Certificate of Need program is, are you putting your facility in an area where it's going to one, increase access, and two, provide lower cost procedures for the public at large? One of those is easy to hit, and that's gonna be the lower cost. We all know that it's gonna cost less to do a procedure in an ASC versus doing it in a hospital surgical suite. It just is, it's gonna be cheaper, for the payers, it's gonna be cheaper for the patients. And we're actually seeing right now a huge shift um, amongst a couple of different areas of practice, orthopedics especially. You know, you had Blue Cross Blue Shield who put out some guidance last year that said they were actually gonna pay you 15% less if you did a procedure in a hospital surgical suite and they would pay you 50% more if you did it in ASC. That, you know, CMS has been increasingly um, uh, putting larger numbers of procedures that would qualify to be performed in an outpatient setting. So all of that is just leading to this, like what we are seeing as a shift in procedures being pulled out of the hospital and into the surgery suite. So you hit that one pretty easily. The next one is improving access. How are you gonna improve access for the public at large? You, in theory, you just put one in somewhere. Yeah, we're improving access. But what this CON board wants to see, especially this iteration of the board, they wanna know what's your pair mix look like? Are you seeing Illinois Medicaid patients? Are you seeing Medicare patients? 
And on the Medicaid side, which MCOs are you going to be contracting with? I get it. I think every doctor out there practicing knows that it's incredibly difficult sometimes to work with some of our, our Medicaid MCOs. But I will tell you that if you want to get a CON approved in the state of Illinois right now, you got to contract with them and you got to be willing to work that into your pro forma and figure out how it works because you're not going to get approved unless you're serving all patients, regardless of their ability to pay. Okay. Um, and that's that's a huge, you know, it can be a huge stumbling block for some folks. So then you, the next piece of that is where are the procedures coming from? If I'm doing all of my procedures, let's say Dr. Murado, I'm a orthopedic surgeon, I do a thousand procedures a year and I'm doing them at this surgery center that's down the block, maybe half of them there and half of them at a hospital. It makes sense for the new, for the new facility for me to say, I'm gonna take the ones that I'm doing at the hospital and put them into this new surgery center. It's not gonna make the hospital happy. They're gonna not be so uh, you know, keen on me pulling all those procedures. And if I pull them from the surgery center, they're not gonna be happy with that either. The way the CON board looks at it is, what is going to be the impact, negative or not, on the facilities that you're pulling those procedures from? If you've got a surgery center that you're pulling those procedures from that is underperforming, then they're gonna look at that not so positively. They're gonna say, well, you're actually just hurting this other facility. So you don't really need this new one. Why don't you just move them over to this place? There's ways to, to kind of get around some of that and, and discuss it and, and nuance your argument. I tell people all the time, I you see a one and having two phases, the technical and the narrative. The technical is all these things we've been talking about, pulling that information, trying to check as many boxes as you can so that you can get what's called a positive state board staff report. The narrative is the story you tell based on the information you have. And so, you know, as a, we're putting an ASC somewhere, I would want to tell the story of, hey, listen, yeah, we're pulling these procedures out of this hospital because it's going to be cheaper to do them in the ASC. We're pulling these procedures outside of this other ASC because they don't have the equipment. They're not equipped to do total joint replacements, for example or they're not equipped to do any number of other things that we're looking to do, or they just don't have the block time available. There's real um, access issues. So if you let me open up this new one, I can solve all those problems and I'll make it an open staff policy and I'm gonna do all these wonderful things and see everybody. So that's, you know, and to get to your question, Christine, I know it was a long way to get there. You know, do you buy one or do you just start with brand new? You can buy one. And I've had people who have said, all right, listen, we're gonna buy this underperforming surgery center. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to move it. Or maybe we're just going to operate it right there. If you Let's say you just want to operate it where it's at and you do what's called a um, change of ownership, but through the CON process, it's actually called a certificate of exemption. The CON board does not have discretion to um, deny a COE application for a change of ownership. They can ask you a bunch of questions. They can request a bunch of information. It is a significantly more streamlined process. I would say the COE process is going to take you, it will take me as the attorney probably two to three weeks to put an application together. Once it's filed, it's going to take you anywhere between 45 and 60 days to get it approved. And so it's just a matter of whether or not the board chair is going to approve it herself, which she has the statutory authority to do. Or will she refer it to a board meeting and then the entire board considers it, but ultimately under statute, they have to approve it. And that was a change that came under the first year of um, Governor Rauner. Um, 
it was a huge change pushed by the Illinois Hospital Association. They wanted to see um, the board be a bunch more faster and um, approving or at least considering these change of ownership applications. And I would say that eight times out of 10, it's viewed as a very positive thing. Those two instances where it's not is when it deals with a hospital, for example. You know, I've dealt with the last couple of years some significant hospital projects. Um, I got the folks, uh, you, you might have heard about Mercy Hospital closing or looking at closing, uh, that was last year. I represented the group that came in and acquired that, but that had to go through a certificate of exemption process, which was very long. And the board did their homework and they asked a lot of questions. Um, and then just recently, two months ago, I represented a group who um, got uh, regulatory approval to acquire Weiss and West Suburban Hospitals. So it's um, it's it's easier, but not easy to say that much. And it's required that you file when a change of ownership to get uh, a COE. And that, that change of ownership can be two things. This is also, I uh, can talk about this stuff all day. There's also two other things to keep in mind with changes of ownership. A change of ownership under the CON guidelines are either when you're changing 50 plus 1% of actual ownership in an entity that holds the license, or it can be control. So maybe you're not actually changing enough percentage of ownership in excess of 50%, but you are changing control. The three of us own a surgery center and you know we're bringing in a fourth person who's gonna buy a smaller percentage of the surgery center, but that person's gonna be running it and they're gonna have effective control to make decisions. We would have to file a COE mm -hmm. to let the board know that someone else is controlling this and would also require updates to the licensure application. I know that happens a lot when, when um, ASTCs will hire or contract with like outside management companies. They mm -hmm. might change the management company or decide we don't want to manage in-house anymore. We want to contract this out. That's a change of control to day-to-day -day operations, which, um, you know, to your point, would require uh, going through the, the board. It can. And we've also been able to help clients kind of work through their management agreements to figure out if it actually is that change of control or is it going to be decisions that are ultimately going to be made by the board, which is made up of the members. And so maybe it's not the type of change that they may that may require a CON. You know, if this management company is not going to be um, empowered to take on debts or take out loans on their own, then maybe it's not that effective control. But if they are having some of these other kind of um, uh, powers in terms of their management, then it might require that. What's the time process then for a brand new one? How long is it typically taking right now to get through that entire process? Uh, it varies. So what I will say is this, the CON board has meets every 45 days and they have a set schedule that you can calculate on your own and they also have it on their website. Um, what they are allowed to do under law is have a 120 day review period. So that means once you submit your application, they have 120, they can take up to 120 days to review it. They don't always take that time. Sometimes they, they do take it. Um, but what I tell clients is if we file by X date and it's 120 days out from a meeting, I can guarantee you we should be on that meeting. They also have the ability to just do a 60 day review. 60 days is gonna be the shortest period of time. With in the last three years, I haven't seen many projects get a 60 day review. It's typically been a 120 day review, although I've gotten those reduced many times down to 75, 80, 90 days. Um, so again, cause they don't have to do 120 days uh, to put together the application, to do the research, to do all of that on a brand new CON, 
it would take typically take me three to four weeks. And what that time frame can expand depending upon how long it takes a client to get me information. You know, sometimes they they think that they're ready to go and they have everything set up, but it turns out I start asking all kinds of questions and it's hard to pull that referral data. People don't always have the systems in place to pull it. And there's always a lot of follow-up questions on that. And as I said, that's really a, a big part of the, the meat and potatoes right. of the application. Right. And then, so would you say then, what, what on average do you think from start to operational center are we really talking about here? Is it a year on average or what do you see? So I would say, I, I count, I, ask, I tell people to count on six months to get through CO1. That's going to be, a, and that's a long process, right? That's me putting together the application, getting it submitted, us having to think about or worry about whether or not there's going to be a public hearing, which we could talk about later, and then, you know, consideration by the board and hopefully approval. Once you are approved, what we would want to do is somewhere in that last month or so, um, we would want to make sure that your architect is coordinating with the Illinois Department of Public Health design construction standards folks because you're essentially submitting a packet to them to get a permit to begin doing your construction work. Then you have all your local permitting, wherever you're gonna be constructing your facility. So you gotta get through that. Hopefully there's no zoning issues. Um, that means it could take a year or it might be as quick as the seven months, seven, eight months, right? I mean, if you're just doing a conversion of an office space where you're doing interior work, it might not require as much time. But um, start to finish, CON is gonna be on the long end, I would say six months, and then everything else to get you operational, that could be anywhere from three to four months as well. Oh, fair enough. And then what would you say, and this is kind of a loaded question, is the cost of getting this done? I mean, you've got the lawyer, you potentially have a lawyer and a consultant, you potentially have an architect as well. You know, so it can vary, you know, whether you're just renovating your current space or you're building a brand new building, but putting the real estate costs aside from acquiring mm -hmm. Property. What would you say people can expect, uh, you know, for the cost of getting a surgery center up and running? Are we talking a couple hundred thousand? Are we talking a couple million? And I know you may say it's uh, that's the range right there. But what do you think? Like, what should people expect? Yeah, I mean, I, the construction costs are so crazy right now. I have I get at least one to two calls a week from clients asking me because that's the other thing with this CON process you have to put in two, there's two other real important parts of it. There's the cost of the project and the space that you're gonna be using. And there's standards associated with both of those. So you wanna make sure that your costs are gonna be meeting state standards. You wanna make sure that your um, space allocation for the operating rooms, recovery bays, all that stuff is gonna meet state standards. Um, often I'm getting these calls that people are gonna be blowing their project costs. And so they're concerned about whether or not they're going to have to go back to the CO1 board to try to get an increase, which is allowable to a certain percentage, or what does it mean if they're going to com be completely blowing that as well? And so we kind of help guide them through that process. So the construction side is incredibly difficult to, to um, assume at this point. I will tell you that depending upon the size of the surgery center, um, your architectural fees are probably going to be you know, that, that initial cost, that, that walkthrough and, you know, kind of just sketching out your space, I've seen it go anywhere between ten dollars and $20,000, right? So that's your outlay on, on that in the beginning before you even get CO and approval. So you got to be thinking about that as being money at risk. Um, because if you don't get the CO and approval, then you spend money on plans or at least a schematic right. or on that walkthrough that 
you're not really going to be helpful to you. On the legal side of things, you know, we have a couple of different arrangements that we've used with folks. Um, because we do so much of this work, we always try to, um, you know, we start with by telling folks we have hourly rates that they could take advantage of our expertise, and maybe we can get it done sooner uh, for them. But recognizing that clients also want to try to mitigate their risk as much as possible and have some certainty, we do set up a number of flat fee arrangements um, or some not to exceed caps, that kind of thing. Uh, again, it really depends on the size of the ASC, but I will tell you that the last three ASCs we've done, the legal costs have been, they've been no less than 70,000 and they've been probably um, no higher than probably 130. And that and that high end, that's like a, that's a real contentious battle, right? I mean, that's that, right. that's significant. Wow. And if you're going for one OR, then you might be on the lower end of that scale. If you're going for more than one OR, you're going to be somewhere in the middle or higher. Right. Um, and then again, it it depends on the the lay of the land because the the one thing we haven't talked about is opposition. You know, because these um, these facilities are highly sought after, it can be very competitive in the marketplace. We talked a little bit about taking facility, um, taking procedures out of facilities. And so there is a process um, for folks to express their um, opposition. And that opposition can be as simple as somebody submitting a letter. It can be as much as them sending bus, bus loads of people to the hearing to wave signs and say, this is going to ruin the world. Right. Or they hire a gaggle of lobbyists to try to, you know, do all sorts of other things. So I've dealt with them all. The the uh, the ones where nobody says anything, and the ones where we're fighting tooth and nail to to try to get it through the process. What I mean, this is again another kind of loaded question, but there's a lot of states that either don't have a CON process or got rid of their CON process. Um, do you feel there's still a place for the CON process? Do you you think it it uh, it's important that it helps that it somehow uh, protects the state? Um, or does it is it just a bureaucratic uh, and a way of kind of controlling, you know, free enterprise or capitalism or whatever you want to call it? You know, what do you think about that? So I think at this point there are it's either thirty between thirty four and thirty six states that still have some semblance of CON. You know, CON was born out of this concept that there was so much money. Well, actually, it was born out of this concept that the federal government was spending the money to construct these facilities many, many years ago. We now know that that's, that's shifted. It's on the providers themselves, the hospital systems, these um, physicians, they're the ones who are actually putting up the money to construct these facilities. And so, um, you know, I actually testified before the, uh, the Illinois legislature, I think it was three years ago. There seems to always be a bill every single year by a Republican senator typically to disband the CON board and get rid of the process. It never quite makes it through. And the CON process in Illinois is on a, uh, it's a 10-year program. So I think we are in year four of this 10-year period. And then at the end of that period, it will come up again for renewal. Um, is it a market control? Yes, absolutely. It, there's just, there's no real way to kind of talk around that. But is it a good market control? Is it a necessary one? Is it helpful? Um, I think you can answer those questions yes as well. Um, you know, what I have found, if you look at the, the outlay of some of these other states where there are no CON, 
And the thing about it, CON in different states, it's different everywhere, you know, just like you would expect. Some states only require it for long-term care. Some states only require it for kidney care facilities, um, or they don't require it for anything except for ASCs. It just really varies across the board. Here we have what I would call in Illinois a probably a pretty robust um, requirement for CON. You need it for surgery centers. You need it for nursing homes. You need it for some medical office buildings, not just a physician office, but a medical office building where you might be doing it in conjunction with the healthcare system, or you're going to be doing some types of procedures in there. Um, you need a COE if you're going to be selling the real estate where there is a surgery center. You got to give notice because the CON board wants to know what's happening there. Um, but in terms of bringing new facilities, I haven't seen it be an impediment to bringing new facilities in Illinois. Um, I think that it's probably the reason why we have less players in the marketplace in terms of health systems. Um, and But I think you're seeing consolidation across the board and across the country. So I'm not sure that that's been a, a big impediment either. And this version of the CON board and previous ones haven't denied a lot of projects that have come before them, mostly because, you know, if you're getting to the point where you're submitting an application, you, you typically have a pretty good basis for why it should be um, established and why it should be approved. It's, it's not worth it. And we can figure that out pretty quickly for, you know, a little bit of time and a little bit of investment, whether or not it makes sense for you to put it in a particular community or, you know, in a particular size and say, it's just, it's, it's not worth it. Or yeah, we should absolutely move forward. I think this is really fascinating. I mean, this is obviously a lot of information for everybody listening to really absorb. We could talk about this for hours. The idea would be that if you're thinking of getting a CON, you're wondering if you need one, you're wondering how much it will cost you, whether you're a good candidate, that you know, one is the perfect person to reach out to to answer these questions. And you know, we give your name to our clients as well because you really need somebody who doesn't just dabble in this area, but yeah. you actually like any area of healthcare knows what they're doing. Um, any final questions, Christina, that you wanna ask? You know, one of the things we, did, we didn't touch on, and it's probably, you know, beyond the scope of this conversation, but I think people need to sort of be aware of is um, some of the billing aspects related to surgical suites versus surgery centers. There's been a lot of, we've seen recently in our practice, Erica, a lot of companies that come in and tell these uh, doctors operating surgical suites, there's ways to enhance their fees, or there's ways to really get facility fees, even though they're not a licensed ASTC. Um, anytime you see something like that, I think you need to have your caution flags go up and seek uh, knowledgeable healthcare counsel who can help you through that or, or someone in the consultant process right. because um, there, there's a fine line between how you can bill for services through a, a real CON accredited licensed ASTC and um, just having a surgical center despite what some business may tell you there are a lot of um, nuances to that and, and ways right. that you can get in trouble. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think you and I actually, we could do a separate podcast on surgical suites <laughs> and some of the things we see going on in there. I probably you, should. Uh, we'll you do that. You will get week. audited. You're absolutely right. You will get audited. You, you cannot receive a facility fee unless you have an ASC. That's just, that's just it. Great. Well, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share on this topic? Um, you know, I guess the only other thing that I would mention is, uh, the CON is not, uh, as, as big and scary as, as folks would make it out to be. 
Um, this board that exists right now, there are currently nine members and it's supposed to be an 11 member board. There was a period of time when there wasn't a full complement, just like now. Um, it's appointees by the governor. Um, but again, these are folks who have healthcare experience, at least these board members who are on right now. Of the nine members, there are six with nursing backgrounds, two of them with healthcare executive experience in the hospital in a hospital system setting, and at least one who's worked in an FQHC. Uh, so it's it's um, it's folks who are knowledgeable about the process. If you're thinking about you know whether or not a uh, facility, a licensed facility, is the right thing for you, we can certainly talk about it and work it through because there's a there's a lot to consider as we try to get through in these last 20 minutes or so. Great. Well, thank you so much. This is Juan Morado from Benish, and we'll have your contact information when we post this podcast. And um, I think that wraps up this topic. We could probably do a part two down the road. We'll let you know all the questions <laughs> all right. that we get on this topic. But thanks everyone so much for joining us. You can watch our other podcasts at the Health Law Hotspot. And we hope you'll let us know if you have any questions. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.